Our sermon, our sermon text this morning is John 16, 1 through 15. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not yet known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Advent is over. Christ has come. We long his coming again. So we're back in the Gospel of John. John chapter 16, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to... John chapter 16, and we'll go ahead and pray. Lord, you have, you have reminded us through your son that we should not let our hearts be troubled, but rather we should believe in you and believe also in your son. And for in your house, there are many, many rooms. Father, as we contemplate a year of likely anxiety and chaos behind us and await another year of anxiety and chaos before us, God, let us know that our hearts ought not to be troubled. Our home is not in this world, but God, let us see and let us have our eyes of faith to fix upon you where we shall dwell eternally with you. So God, as we come now to your word, let us delight. Let us delight that until we come to you and see you face to face, you have given someone your spirit to uphold us through this world, until we come and see you face to face. So God, let us delight in that, and let us see that you are forever good to your people. 
Amen. The advertisement said this. Help wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. Ernest Shackleton began the voyage with his ship named the Endurance, aptly named, he didn't know it at that time. They're going to cross the Antarctic, so he's going on one side from the, the South American side, and he's going to start the voyage there, cross the Antarctic, and then get picked up with another ship on the other side. Well, they get down there, and then on January 19th, this is in the middle of World War I, or as World War I's just starting, they get caught in the ice. They can't go anywhere. So their, ice become, their ship becomes trapped in the ice, and they decide to stay with it until spring. Spring thaw comes, and they think, okay, we'll break free. Well, October comes. Starting in January, now it's October. The season's backwards. The spring thaw comes, and the ice shifts, cracks the boat, and the water starts pouring in, and they have no... Nothing else to do, but completely abandoned ship. They go into some lifeboats after they stay in the sheet of ice for two more months. They go into this lifeboats, bob in the ocean until they hit some land five days later. 497 days had passed since they had last put their feet on solid ground. And they get to this island, Elephant Island, but it was far from any of the shipping lanes, so they knew they could stay there, but they weren't gonna get they weren't gonna get saved, they were gonna get left behind. So Shackleton, who's been constantly pulling all of his men together, building up their morale, says, We have to do it again. He leaves some of the men on Elephant Island, takes the best of the, the life rafts that are left, with several other men. They start out again. And in what is considered one of the, the greatest navigational feats in nautical history, they go from Elephant Island to the deserted side of South Georgia Island. They make it through a hurricane and a life raft. And they get to this side, and they get to the, the south end of this island, and they know where they're at. They're using the stars, but yet they know they can't stay there. So they take screws from the ship, screw them into the bottom of their boots, because now they have to traverse this island that no foot has ever crossed before. And they do it. Shackleton walks into this whaling village and he goes into the store and he opens it up and he says, I am Shackleton. And the men begin to weep, thinking he had been lost, presuming he had been lost. But something was there in, in Shackleton that upheld him. This is why people 
revere him now, 100 years after his death. There's something in him that upheld him, and he kept all of his men together, and not one of them, not even one, had passed. He brought all of his men back home safely. But there was something that would uphold him through all of this. And what I want you to see is that you have more than that. You have far more than that within you because of the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ. Shackleton, the most he could endure, most he could do is just endure the world that was being pressed against you. But no, but if you have the Spirit in you, you will, you will endure everything the world can press against you. Not only that, God will use you to then go and conquer the world by proclaiming the gospel for his glory. You have far more strength within you through the Holy Spirit than all of the men of renown throughout history. So I want you to see that the Holy Spirit, he will uphold you. He will uphold and proclaim through you. How are we going to see that in our text? All right, verses 1 through 4. We're going to see this. This is going to happen through trials and through tribulations. Not in this, this, this white slate that's happening. No, no. Through trials and tribulations, through the midst of that, all of this is going to happen. Then verses 5 through 11, you're going to see the sending of the Spirit. How does he come? Then finally, we're going to wrap it up, verses 12 through 15. You're going to see what the Spirit does in that He speaks truth that glorifies Christ. The Spirit will speak truth that glorifies Christ. Now, let's go back and start in the text here. Verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, as a parent, you know that you govern your exposure of the world, you govern that to your kids. You don't just throw them in the deep end. So one of the conversations we have with all of our kids, if they begin asking too many questions... You say, well, this is when they were younger, some of them can know. Can you pick up a bucket full of rocks and carry it? No. It's too much to carry, isn't it? Yes. In the same way, you knowing this, even if it's true, is just too much for you to carry. You see the same thing happening with Christ and his disciples earlier on in his ministry. Even in verse 12, he says... I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's been a month now so since we've been in John. But when you, you said all, when he's saying, I've said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. You, look, you can look at the previous two chapters. You can see all that Christ has been saying to them. But specifically what he's talking to them is about the world's hatred towards them. That the world will hate them. Why? Because they are the disciples of Christ. The world will hate you in Christ. In Christ, if you are in Christ, the world will hate you. 
The world will hate you because you're not of this world. The world will hate you and you should expect it and the world will hate you. But you will continue to do the work of God. So if you look in these previous chapters, they want to crucify Christ. Not because he himself is living out the parable of being the Good Samaritan. Not because he heals a blind man. Not because he heals the lame. Not because he feeds 5,000. That's not why they want to kill Christ. They want to kill Christ because he tells them, he does these miracles, and then he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He does these miracles, and then he tells them that I and the Father are one. That's when they want to kill him. Verse 25 of this previous chapter. And they hated me without cause. He's fulfilling that psalm. In the same way, the disciples of Christ will also be killed and be hated without cause. So all of these things which are spoken as a sober warning so that they won't be caught off guard, so that they will not fall away when it begins to happen. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away, not to burden them on you, not to make you feel helpless and hopeless. No, 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 quite the opposite. I do it so that you won't fall away. Like this, the, in the, the, the Jewish uprising, in 67, the city of Yafada fell. This fortress fell. Why? Because one soldier fell asleep. They knew which one would fall asleep, and he fell asleep. And that's where the Romans went in and conquered the fortress. In the same way, Christ is saying, I don't want you to be caught off guard. When the world becomes your enemy, and begins to hate you. So what does this look like? Well, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. And they're going to kill you, presuming that they are doing the service to God. Now, the Jewish people, they, they loved the temple. They upheld the temple. But when the first temple was torn down, 586 B.C., and they're carried off into Babylon, they still need a hub in which the Jewish people could continue to be the Jewish people. So they would have these synagogues then. Instead of just one new temple in Babylon, no, they know they can't do that because the temple is going to be on Mount Zion in the Jerusalem. So they would have all of these synagogues that would pop up. And then they bring these synagogues and that idea of that back to them into Jerusalem. So you still have then the second temple in Jerusalem, but then you would also have these synagogues, these local places, where the Jewish people would still gather together for worship and for teaching. And so then to be put out of the synagogue is also to be cut off from all the religious life, all the cultural life, and everything that is happening. But the coming persecution, it wouldn't be just that of isolation being put out, it would also carry on then into death. Those who are killing the people of God would actually think they're doing a service to God. It was a Jewish jihad. That's what started. That's who was killing the early Christians. 
a twisted understanding of what God expected. God in the Old Testament gave him the, the, the command to clear up, clean out the Canaanites out of the land. But there's no provision for killing someone who is rightly worshiping the Messiah. In Jewish law, not, not Mosaic law, but in Jewish law in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 81b, there is a provision for someone who is a zealot, zealous for God, to kill those who are in fragrant rebellion against God, and it would be considered meritorious on their behalf. So you can see how this was indeed encouraged and brought in. And even today, even today, the most fanatical Zealots who are killing the people of God. It's religious. Do you know that in this past week, a week ago, hundreds of our brothers and sisters in Christ were slaughtered as they gathered to worship. And I, I don't I don't really watch movies and I don't watch like little clips, but I forced myself to watch the, the footage. Not of the killings, but just of the bodies laying there, women holding their children, both of them dead, strewn everywhere. What is their great sin? What is their offense against the world? It's that they don't love the world. They love God. Earlier this year, 700 in Nigeria were killed as a farewell offering to the Muslim president who was going out. It happened in the first century and it's still happening now that men with blood on their hands will pray to God and think it is pleasing to him. Do not be caught off guard. Be prepared when this happens. We can't forget the cosmic battle. The cosmic battle that is happening. We are commissioned by God to subdue the world. To subdue creation, primarily, by making it beautiful. Exercising dominion over it. And to subdue sinners through the gospel. But at the same time, they are seeking to overtake us as well. Not through the truth and the clarity of the gospel, but through lies. And not through a changing of the heart, but through the mutilating of the flesh and through carrying the sword. That is how they seek to conquer us as well. So do not forget that there is a cosmic battle happening there. And you can't presume to be neutral. That is when you'll get caught off guard and begin to question your faith and wonder, why is this happening? Oh, be prepared. They crucified your Messiah. Well, are they going to leave you there? No. They'll come for you as well. It is wise that we as Christians in this church, not just Christians in Africa or in Asia, North Korea. No, us in this church. It is wise for us to be prepared to endure 
the hardships that the world will bring against us. And the best way you can prepare yourself for it is by loving the world less and everything the world can offer to you. And if they take it, they take it. And that's fine. Okay, so in verses 1 through 4, Christ is telling them, calling them to not be like a, a guard caught sleeping, unaware of what is going to happen. Be prepared so that when the hour does come that you know, okay, I understand what's happening. Now you will see that it is the Spirit who's going to uphold you because Christ will no longer, is no longer, walking upon this earth. Let's go back to the verses here. Let's start at the end of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So if you're one of the disciples, you're asking yourself, why now? Like, really? We've been with you for three years now, and now, right before you go, in the hours before you're going to depart us, now you're telling us this? It's been hard, and we've been hungry, but we've been, but we've been safe. And now all this talk about turmoil in the midst of you leaving. But you see, this couldn't happen when Christ is with them. They're not going to be wiped off. They're not going to be wiped out. They're not going to be carried off because the mission of the cross could not be thwarted. You see this multiple times. Luke 4, when he's, they seek to throw him off the cliff, cliff in Nazareth, in Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda, in John 5, and even in John 10, they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. It was only that he was able to tell them when the, the shadows of the horrific hour are beginning to draw near, the very hour when Christ will be drawn up on the cross, when he will drink of the wrath of God, and he will step over into death. It is from then on that the disciples will ever be in need of the comfort of Christ. But this comfort of Christ will now come through the Spirit of Christ. So Christ's focus here Look at verse 5. His focus is on going back to the Father. Look, read verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And he, and he tells him, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Go back to chapter 13. Go back. Verse 38. 37. Well, let's call it 36. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? No, 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 Jesus, he did say, Lord, where are you going? So, okay, here's what's happening. Peter is saying the right words, Lord, where are you going? But he has the completely wrong focus. Jesus is talking about the suffering that's going to come. So Peter's saying, where are you going? I will follow you into that. Into the suffering, I will follow you. No, no, no. Peter, you don't get it right. Yes, you can say the right words. Where are you going? But you have the wrong trajectory. I'm focused on going back to the Father. That's what Peter is, Christ is trying to call him back out to me. He's saying, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Christ is trying to pull him. No, no, Peter, not into this earthly suffering. You're not going to follow me there. You can't drink this cup, but you will follow me. You will go back to the heavenly Father. So Peter says, uh, says these right words, but with a completely wrong trajectory and meaning behind it. So Christ, as a way of rebuking him, calling him into that. No, I did say that, but no, no, no. Yeah, he said the right words. Sure, you, but you, you had the wrong heart, the wrong trajectory behind them. So Peter... And the root of his sorrow is deserving a rebuke. They're not lamenting. They're not lamenting that Christ will be gone from them. That's not their lament. What they're lamenting is that the world's going to come after them. We'll press against them, that the world will seek to subdue them. But when we love the world less, when we properly fear God and our fear of the world will then draw strangely dim, you could say, then the words of Christ here are deeply rich to your soul. If you don't fear God, you will fear the world. If God does not sovereignly rule over you, the world will sovereignly rule over you. Fear God. And you may not know this, but it's actually to your good that Christ is no longer here. Sounds audacious, but how can you say it? Well, Christ says it. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. It is to your advantage that I go away. So that the, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth will come. Christ bodily is able to be in one place at one time. And when he was at Bethesda, he was at Bethesda. When he was in Jerusalem, he was in Jerusalem. When he was in Galilee, he was in Galilee. But the Spirit is able to not just be a, a buttress outside of you, right? but he will come and be a support within, upholding you. When all of the world is pressing in, in against you, and you know you can't support yourself, the Holy Spirit within you will hold you up in the midst of all of that. So get this. Let's actually take a little a trinity time out, Okay. Um, you have the son here, 
verse 7, saying, I will send him to you. So the son returns back to the father. Son returns back to the father. Then the father and the son send the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. These three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they don't differ from each other in terms of their attributes, their holiness, their righteousness, their justice, their grace. They don't differ in those. They don't even differ in their minds at all. But actually, the way they differ is how they relate to one another. That's how you're able to have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's because they relate to each other in a different way. That the Father is unbegotten. The Son, you would say, is eternally begotten of the Father. Never created, eternally begotten. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. So what does the Holy Spirit do when he comes? He convicts the world. My German mother says he convicts so that he might pardon. He convicts us of our sin so that we will hate our sin and that we will turn from it. He will convict us in in the world in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe me. The root of all the sin is an unbelief in Christ. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. Christ has come and he said, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And the Spirit comes along and you know what the Spirit says. Spirit comes along and he says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father and goes to the Father except through Him. That is the work of the Spirit. Cause them to convict them of their sin and their unbelief in Christ. And this, my dear brother and sister, is an ongoing work of the Spirit. Is the Spirit working in you still, dear mature brother or sister in the faith? Let me ask you, when's the last time you wept? You wept over your sin. Sometimes we'd rather have the Spirit work in our city than in our own heart. And when we're first saved, the Spirit comes and with a knife just pierces our heart and cuts it apart. And now it's a little bit more than a pinprick that we just kind of brush aside and move on. Why? Because we've, we've arrived. We're Reformed Baptists. I mean, goodness, if anyone's arrived, it's us, right? And we're not convicted of our sin anymore. On this side of glory, our maturity as Christians shall never outgrow the Spirit's convicting work. All of which is our unbelief in Christ. It's all of our sin is rooted in our unbelief in Christ. 
but not just sin, but also righteousness, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. It is this righteousness of Christ that is given to you through the Spirit, through the work of the Spirit. But not only that, but also judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan's dominion over men and power to enslave them in sin is cast off. As we rehearse the Heidelberg Catechism with our children, question one, towards the end, well, actually right in the middle, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and, and has set me free from the tyranny of the evil one. So this is the work of the Spirit. Do you see what it is? The Spirit of Christ is coming to convict you of your sin and your unbelief in God. I pray that he's doing that right now, especially if you don't believe in God. That is the work of the Spirit, to convict you of your sin. Not only that, he's not going to leave you there. He's going to give you then the righteousness of Christ, declare you not guilty, that you would have a right standing with God as Christ has it. But not only that, I feel like I'm a salesman. He'll convict you of your sin, give you the righteousness of Christ, but also he will remove the judgment and the tyranny that Satan has over you. Beautiful. Let's go on. Verse 12. I shall have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. How fitting. I too have many things to say to you, but we are running out of time and you cannot bear them now. So let's jump. Oh, let's actually just summarize it. So what's happening here in verses 12 through 15? Christ is saying that the Spirit will come and he will speak truth and not out of his own authority, but he will speak. Whatever he hears, he will speak. So here is the Son. Christ is been saying all this time, the Son has been saying the words of the Father. I can do nothing apart from my Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. The Son is doing what the Father says. Now that the Son is gone, the believers are still there. Well, what about the Spirit? No, no, no. It's continuing on. The Spirit is only going to say what the Son has given to him. And the Son can only give to him what the Father has given to him. So this chain is remaining unbroken. What do we do? This upcoming week. Number one. Do not rely upon your own strength. The evil of the world is and the evil of the world will be pressing in against you. And it will hate you when you stand up and speak against its rebellion against God. They will hate you for that. If you doubt, you join Brian and protesting children being sacrificed. Go ahead and do that and see what happens. You'll quickly see the hatred of the world coming towards you. When this happens, rely upon the helper. Our own strength is not enough to endure. 
We are broken vessels, but we are broken vessels in the hands of a good potter. And we're reminded, as Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, we, we as Christians, will boast all the more gladly of our weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, Paul writes. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Do not rely upon your own strength, but seek that the Spirit would work in you and uphold you from within. That's number one. Number two. The Spirit's work concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you love the Father, you will love those who speak of sin and righteousness and judgment. You'll love them. Your brother, your sister, who points out your sin is not automatically a hypocrite just because they might point out something that you have done wrong. Perhaps they lack some tact, but they're, but the refining fire will often come through a rebuke of an unrefined tongue from your brother or sister. Take that. Receive that. We haven't not outmatured the work of the Spirit. Okay, number one, do not rely upon your own strength, but the Spirit of God working in you and through you. Number two, welcome the convicting work of the Spirit through your brothers and sisters around you. Number three, be open to the Spirit moving in you and through you. Have a humble and sober awareness of your eternal role in this temporal world. As you share the gospel of God's word, anticipate that the Spirit will move through you. You don't need to fear the world. Because it will be subdued through you. It is through you, through you guys, that the Spirit is going to move to convict other people of their sin, to have them filled with the righteousness of Christ, and to be freed from the judgment of God that is looming over them. Your life has purpose. You think that your life has no purpose? I don't care where you work. I don't care how many kids you stay home with. No, your life has purpose because the Spirit of God will work in you and through you to convict other people of their sins. Anticipate that this will happen as you go and engage this world. And all of this is happening so that the Son, verse 14, so that the Son will be glorified. As we've been singing, that all glory would be to Christ. And he will glorify me, Christ says, for he will take what is mine, all of these words, and declare it to you. And my brothers, he will declare it through you to the nations. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we just delight in your goodness to us. 
that we do not deserve. But God, you have not abandoned your people. Even though your son no longer dwells with us, God, you have sent your spirit to uphold us. To lovingly convict us of our sin. To cut us, God. We ask that we would never all grow. That we would never become so mature, so refined, so theologically accurate. That we are no longer convicted of our sin. God, thank you for your goodness towards us. And we anticipate that you will use us, that you will use this body, not to be overcome by the world, God, but to be used by you, to have your spirit move through us, that others might also be convicted of their sin and turn to you and see your beauty and your grace and dwell with you and worship with you by believing in the finished work of your son. God, work in us in this way. And all God's people said, amen.